0: Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Heavenly Father, we do look to you this morning, Father, that you would be pleased to teach and instruct us. Father, we ask that you would be pleased, O Lord, to uh, meet us where we are, that, O Father, you would not only uh, instruct us in the head, O Father, but you would also instruct us in the heart, that, Lord, you you would press your word upon us in such a way, O Lord, uh, that it has uh, uh, everlasting effect in making us uh, more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Uh, The title of this morning's message is uh, uh, How to Grow in Loving and Treasuring Jesus. And as I rattle that sermon title off, I'm looking at your faces to see if anyone might be thinking, okay, that sounds like a marvelous title, but how in the world do we get there uh, from this text? because it seems that we just read about Judas hanging himself. Uh, so how do, we get to, uh, uh, how do we get to that sermon title from a text like this? And uh, I will confess that uh, uh, that wouldn't have been so easy for me to see until yesterday, probably about 3 o'clock. Uh, this uh, sermon has been like some sermons are, where it has uh, taken a continual wrestling with God in order to... Uh, come by any kind of point. There were lots of things that I thought about doing with this uh, sermon, and there are lots of things that we could do with this text, but uh, um, I believe that uh, this text has so much to speak, so much to say about increasing our love and increasing our adoration uh, for Jesus. Let me explain that. If we, if we back up to verse 1, uh, we are confronted with three words at the start when morning came. Uh, in the original uh, language, in the Greek, it literally means at the break of dawn or at the first rays of light, if you will. And we are told that the chief priests, the elders, the people, uh, they take counsel together against Jesus to put him to death. Okay, at this point in our text, uh, we might think to ourselves, everybody's getting what they want. Uh, Judas has his 30 pieces of silver, Uh, and uh, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, uh, they have trumped up their charge of blasphemy uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, Of course, that charge is not going to go very far with Pilate. They still have a lot of work to do. Uh, They are powerless to execute Jesus. Uh, Had they been uh, afforded the authority to uh, commence with capital punishment, they probably would have already have executed Jesus at this point. Uh, But uh, they're powerless to do so, so they have to get Pilate on board with this. At the first ray of light, um, they waste no time. And they bind Jesus, and they lead him away and deliver him to Pilate, uh, who is the procurator or the governor uh, at that time. Um, And that brings us to verse 3, which really in many respects is kind of an intrusion in the text. Um, if, you, if you study Matthew 27, you'll, you'll see that after verse 10, it kind of picks right back up with Pilate again. And uh, we see this somewhat intrusion uh, of Judas. In verse 3, we, say that, we see that Judas, uh, Christ's be, betrayer, he, he learns at some point of Jesus' condemnation, that he's been condemned by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And you see this little phrase here, he changed his mind. Um, If you have an NIV open this morning, it says he is seized with remorse. And still yet, if anyone has a King James translation open this morning, it would say, it would read that he repented. Um, I I really like the King James translation of the Bible, so I mean no disrespect to it when I say this. Uh, But we need to be careful with the word repent in this context. Uh, because we could come to the conclusion that what's going on here is true, saving, biblical uh, repentance, when in actuality the word that's being translated uh, here is a word that uh, is much milder and softer uh, than the word we usually encounter uh, that is uh, uh, true, saving uh, repentance. And I think that's why a lot of the modern translations have done what they've done, And uh, changing that word to uh, remorseful, the new King James translation uh, replaces uh, repentance uh, with uh, 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 remorse. Uh, NIV follows using remorse. Uh, Here the uh, ESV uses changed his mind. And I share all this with you so you'll get kind of a range of meaning. I want to develop this at some point. I don't know if we'll get to it this morning. Uh, Perhaps we will, but at some point I I want to develop that. So kind of store that somewhere where you can find it uh, when the time comes. Uh, Judas has this change of mind. He comes with this remorse. He comes back to the chief priests, the the elders, with his 30 pieces of silver. If you look at verse 4, he makes this confession. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, this really is a strong apologetic or argument, if you will, uh, for the sinlessness of Jesus, uh, what we have here is a man whose conscience has been has been stung uh, by what he has done. he has become remorseful by what he has done, and uh, uh, he, he has this change of heart. here he is guilt laden uh, guilt burdened, uh, full of shame, if you will, uh, desirous to bring back this uh, these thirty uh, pieces of silver, if you will. And uh, he says that he has betrayed innocent blood. And the reason I say this is such a strong argument for the sinlessness of Jesus is because his conscience could have been justified if he could have thought of one thing, maybe just a smidget of a thing, where Jesus was a fake or a farce or putting on some kind of show for the people, uh, a show that would make him look more holy uh, than he actually was. Uh, but Judas is unable to come up with anything. Uh, in fact, he must freely confess, uh, I have betrayed innocent blood. Uh, notice the response at the end of verse 4 by the chief priests and the, and the elders. They say, what is that to us? You know, What's that to us? See to it yourself. In other words, Judas, that's your problem. Of course, I think what they're trying to do is insulate themselves from guilt uh, through Judas. And Judas, you're the, you're the guilty party, not us. I mean, you're, you're the guy, not us. And of course, that doesn't work. Uh, but begin to see how calcified uh, the hearts of these religious leaders really are. Uh, just crystallized and calcified. Um, so Judas, he, he literally throws the pieces of silver that he coveted so much He actually throws them in verse 5 into the temple. He departs and we're told that he hangs himself. He takes his life. Then in verse 6, the chief priests take the pieces of silver and they say it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. Uh, It's quite interesting. Matthew Henry in his commentary uh, says, you know, uh, they don't have any problem with pulling blood money out of the treasury. Uh, They just have a problem putting it back in. Uh, Quite interesting, that the double standard that we have uh, going on here. Uh, So they take counsel, and they bought with these 30 pieces of silver, which is really, we'll talk about this in a few minutes. This is not very much money here. It's a paltry sum of money. Uh, They take it, and they buy the potter's field, which had to have been uh, a pretty cheap prospect right there to have purchased it with 30 pieces of silver. They buy it in verse 7 as a burial place for strangers. That is for uh, what we would call Gentile God-fearers, those uh, who are not uh, of Jewish descent, but nevertheless uh, do indeed desire to come to Jerusalem for the pilgrim feasts and to worship God. Um, You know, hundreds of thousands of people would swell into Jerusalem during these these feasts and occasionally uh, someone would pass away. Uh, who is not of Jewish descent? Which created a problem. Uh, the Jews would not uh, bury uh, that person in their own uh, cemeteries. So here is a here's a useful thing for the community. Now we have a cemetery for, uh, for foreigners and for strangers. Uh, notice how they're kind of covering this up. You know, they're taking this blood money and they're doing something productive for the community with it. You know, we're not going to put it back into the temple treasury. We're going to we're going to do something. Uh, We're going to do something useful with it. Uh, See what great guys we are. The interesting thing is is that the Lord does not allow this to be hidden. Um, Notice what verse 8 tells us. Therefore, that field has been called the potter's field. No. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Um, It was uh, evidently widely known uh, what was going on. And here we are nearly 2,000 years later and publishing that truth even further. Uh, None of these uh, conniveries are are hidden, are they? Um, Then we read in verse 9, Matthew makes a a statement here. He says, "...then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, quote, "...and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field." As the Lord directed me. Now, this verse has caused a lot of commentaries to to spill a lot of ink over these verses, and uh, if you're a reader of Jeremiah's prophecy, if you know Jeremiah's prophecy, uh, you you may stumble here uh, because there are no verses in Jeremiah uh, that read exactly this way. And we might scratch our heads and say, well, wait a second, what's going on here? And it has caused people to to say, it has caused commentaries to say that, uh, uh, you know, there was a scribal error some along along the way where uh, they should have put in Zechariah, for instance, because if you study Zechariah, you will find in chapter 11, which we're going to look at here in a few minutes, uh, wording that does uh, seem to fit here. And some of the early manuscripts do not have Jeremiah, they only have prophets. It stops at prophet and then picks back up at saying so that it reads, it would read this way, then was fulfilled, would have been spoken by the prophet saying, etc., etc., etc. We need not uh, go there. Uh, I want to show you something uh, about how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Uh, and it's really handy for us. All you have to do is turn the page to Mark chapter 1, if you'll do that with me just for a moment. Just turn the page to Mark chapter 1 and you'll see how Mark begins his uh, gospel. He says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you see that with me there? Okay. As it is written in what? Isaiah the prophet, right? Now there are two quotations below. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And secondly, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. Now, the first text, some of your Bibles will have a little footnote there. They'll have a little, uh, the ESV, the the Pew Bible, has a little B there. If my eyes, those things are so small, I don't see them so good. So I think it's a B. Um, But you see that little letter right there. And if you follow it down to the bottom of the page and you look for B... Uh, I can't really read it, but I know it's Malachi 3.1. First quotation is Malachi 3.1. Now the second one in verse 3, you see the little C there? The voice of one crying in the wilderness? Okay, that's from Isaiah. Now, notice that Mark says that this is written in Isaiah the prophet when in actuality, part of the verse comes from Malachi and the other part of the verse comes from Isaiah. Okay, what's going on here is something that was very common in antiquity, very common, especially among Jewish authors, where they would gather prophecies from a couple of different sources, maybe some from the minor prophets, one from the major prophets, as in the case here. They gather one from Malachi, they gather one from Isaiah, and they call the whole thing Isaiah. Sometimes they will call the whole thing by the minor prophet. Sometimes they'll call the whole thing by the name of the major prophet. But this was something that they did. It was part of, their, part of their style. So we need not uh, fuss over that. Now, with that information in mind, we come back, turn the page back to Matthew 27, and now we, we're, we're okay with Jeremiah here. We need not fuss over this because uh, a careful study of the prophecy of Jeremiah will yield that uh, yeah, there's something going on in, in Jeremiah that we can see that where Matthew's gathering this from. Uh, we should probably start with Zechariah, uh, Zechariah chapter uh, 11, if you will, and um, uh, develop that for a moment. And Matthew here is assuming that his readers have a working understanding of these things. That makes it a little tough on us because uh, in many cases we don't have uh, a working understanding of some of these uh, prophetic utterances and uh, we can easily trip over it. But in Zechariah 11, what's going on there in short is God is telling, uh, he tells Zechariah to do this kind of sign act, if you will. He says, Zechariah, I want you to become, a, I want you to become the shepherd of a flock that's doomed for destruction. I want you to do this. You become shepherd of this flock. So Zechariah takes up the work faithfully and he becomes shepherd of this uh, doomed flock, if you will, and he even uh, destroys three of the false shepherds that were leading that flock, leading it astray. Uh, He takes it up, he's faithful in it, uh, only to discover that the flock actually detests him. Uh, The flock can't stand him. The flock wants rid of him. So uh, Zechariah dissolves the relationship. Uh, he, he basically dissolves the relationship. And if I might make application of that right now, uh, there are some churches out there uh, that love to chew up and eat up pastors. Uh, I have a good friend of mine who has been, uh, was, has just gone through 10 years of that. He lasted 10 years in a pulpit uh, where most guys would probably only last one or two and the toil, the strain, the... The 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 trauma that this took on his family. It's one of those churches that like to chew up pastors. And uh, this verse, this chapter is a if there's a chapter in the Bible that speaks to that issue, this is it. Uh, this flock that is doomed for uh, destruction, doomed for slaughter. Uh, they detest Zechariah, uh, in spite of his faithfulness. So Zechariah decides to dissolve the relationship, and then. Down in verse 12, he says then, uh, Zechariah speaking to them. He says, um, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. Okay? And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Now, there's significance to this. Uh, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, there's a case law." that reads like this. Uh, if uh, someone owns an ox and the ox goads a male or female slave then, and kills the slave, then the owner of the ox is to destroy the ox and to pay the master of the slave, guess what? 30 pieces of silver. So what we gather from that is uh, this is the price of a slave in this culture. Is it a high price? Is it a low price in this culture? It's a very low price. This is not very much money. That's the point. Now we come back to Zechariah with this. Here Zechariah is. He's the man sent by God to this congregation. And he says, as he's dissolving the relationship, listen, if you want to, play, if you want to, if you want to square up with me, if you want to pay me, that's fine. If you don't, then just keep the money, then all will be well. No, 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 Zechariah, we'll pay you. Here, we're going to give you 30 pieces of silver. It's all the more that Zechariah was worth to them. And the Lord, in verse 13, tells Zechariah, throw it to the potter. Throw the money to the potter. The lordly price at which I was priced by them, so I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord, to the potter. You see, some of the, you can recognize some of the things that Matthew's picking up here, can't you? With with Judas coming into the house of the Lord and throwing the uh, the pieces of silver into the uh, into the house of the Lord. Now with that in mind, uh, let's think of another text, uh, uh, Jeremiah 19. And in Jeremiah 19, uh, the the Lord is telling Jeremiah to go. Uh, verse one, buy a potter's earthenware flask. All that is to say, go get a clay jar. And I want you to take some of the elders of the people, some of the elders of the chief priests, and I want you to go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the poster gate. Now, interestingly enough, the, son, uh, the, uh, the valley of the son of Hinnom is the traditional site for, guess what? The potter's field. That's the traditional site. That's the tradition holds it. That's the site of the potter's field. And uh, uh, Jeremiah is to take his clay jar. He's to take these elders with him. He's to go to the uh, valley of the son of Hittim or the parter's field, if you will. And he is to proclaim these words. I'll read some of them to you. Verse 3 says, you shall say, hear the word of the Lord. O kings of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of the one who hears it will tingle. He's proclaiming judgment. Uh, verse 4, Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings into it to other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And listen to this, And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence. Now, in the context of Jeremiah, what these guys were doing were they were sacrificing their sons, to the false gods. It's hard to imagine that, but that's what they were doing. See, we see this connection with innocent blood. Uh, back to Matthew 27 for a moment. What are the leaders fixing to do here? They're getting ready to, sh- getting ready to shed innocent blood. Uh, and even Judas, the betrayer, comes back and convicts them. In one respect, Judas is actually kind of like a prophet in this respect, saying, listen, you know, I have sinned. I mean, this man is innocent. innocent. Where the chief priests should be saying, well, whoa, wait wait a second, maybe we need to slow down here, but calcified in heart, they respond with the cold words, "What is that to us? That's your problem, Judas. No, it's not. Yes, it is, but it's not just Judas's problem. It's going to be their problem too. Back to Jeremiah 19 and verse six. Uh, Jeremiah continues, he says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And here we see the place, the the name of the place is changing. That's another connection with Matthew's text. Uh, The name of the potter's field changes, doesn't it? Uh, It changes to field of blood. And then down to verse 10 and 11 Uh, Then you shall, uh, uh, God is telling uh, uh, Jeremiah, you shall break the flask, that clay jar, in the sight of the men who go with you, and shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, so will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, so that it can never be mended. In other words, what's the point of the clay jar here? Uh, The clay jar is an object lesson, you know, one of those object lessons like we sometimes do with children, you know, and the kids don't really necessarily get it, but the adults love it. You know one of those lessons? Uh, it, that's what this is. It's an object lesson. Jeremiah takes that clay jar, he slams it down on the, on the cement and breaks it into so many pieces that it can't be, it can't be fixed. And that is a uh, symbol of the fact that these people are going to be judged and broken uh, beyond repair. Now, with these two thoughts in mind, I know this is a lot to hold together, but let's see if we can hold this together. Now we, begin, we can go back to Matthew 27 and we can maybe begin to see what Matthew is up to here. In the Zechariah text, God sent His man to the flock who was doomed for slaughter. And they thought no more of him than 30 pieces of silver. And they're about to shed innocent, Blood, which is going to bring upon them in about four decades terrible judgments. You see the connection? God has sent His Son, Jesus, to these people. And there are exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, they valued Him at 30 pieces of silver. You see where the idea of value comes from? But the question here is, how much do we value Jesus? as we look at our text here, we see that there's some who have no value for Him whatsoever. And, you know, in, in verses 1 and 2, we see that the chief priests, the elders, I mean, He's got to go. Innocent or not, He's out of here. Uh, he has to go. Uh, we still have folks like that with us today. Every generation has folks like that. Uh, they will not let you have a conversation about Jesus with them. In fact, you kind of know that. You Probably don't even bring it up but if you do bring it up you're going to be uh, you'll sometimes see the lip quiver and the the, the animosity and the hatred for Jesus is uh, very visible Uh, but there's many others maybe more so in our culture uh, today uh, that value Jesus a little bit you know a little bit of value on Jesus you know Um, 30 pieces of silver Uh, but in comparison to how much they value the creation and things of this world and treasures of this world. Um, Jesus is practically uh, irrelevant. Uh, that's really the problem today. Why are our seats so empty this morning? Because our culture has deemed Jesus really kind of irrelevant. He's just irrelevant. Uh, it's just not that useful. We've got other things to worry about. And then, you know, the, the application I'd like to make to us this morning, I'd like to begin, and we're not going to complete it this morning because I know this is a lot. We're going to have to pick this up next week. Um, is We have to ask ourselves uh, this question. How valuable is Jesus to us? I, I suppose every one of us could conceive in their heart, at least I hope we all can, that we could conceive of a way of, um, or we could conceive in our hearts of, loving Jesus more than we do, and treasuring him more than we do. And if your prayer life sounds anything like my prayer life, it uh, goes something like this. Jesus, I wish I loved you more, and I'm ashamed of sometimes of how little it seems that I, that I love you and I treasure you. And uh, Father, I wish you would please forgive me, because uh, if I didn't know better, I'd say I kind of treasured this thing over here a little bit more today than I treasured you. I see a lot of heads wearing in and affirmation. So that comes back to my sermon title. What do we do about it? How do we increase our love for Jesus? How do we grow in treasuring him? And that's what I want to do with the rest of this morning. If we hang, I'll do it all this morning. But if it looks like we're starting to love off, we'll finish the rest of it next week because I still have a lot more to go. And that's okay, I'm not, I'm, I don't care if we get through it all to, today. I'd rather give a little bit out and we get it than uh, give so much out that we don't get it. Let's just do a couple. Our text offers us a couple of things here that, uh, uh, that would help us in this. Uh, the first thing, um, you remember me saying that this text of Judas kind of intrudes in here, it kind of breaks the flow? Remember me saying that at the start? And one of the things that I do when I'm studying a text, and I welcome this to all of you if you're studying your Bibles, is I I inquire about why this story is where it is. Why why would um, Matthew insert this story about Judas here? It clearly breaks the flow of things. I mean, if you look at verses 1 and 2, and you read about Jesus being led to Pilate, and you look at verse 11, that fits perfect. They're hauling Jesus off to Pilate. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor. Flows nicely, doesn't it? But it's interrupted. It's interrupted by this story of Judas. It's really kind of a... As you begin to look at that, you'll see it more and more as you study it. And in terms of chronology, in terms of timing... Uh, it, it's, it's, it's hard, it can hardly be feasible that these events happened. I mean, we read it for the first time and we think, okay, these events are happening one after another, after another, after another. Be careful when you study your Bible that way because the Bible, it doesn't flow like modern books do. A lot of times, like, you've got to pay careful attention to the chronology, careful attention to the timing. It's, it's very likely that this happens a good while after. For, for starters, Judas finds the chief priests and the elders in the temple, doesn't he? I, I can't imagine they're in the temple in, in uh, verse 2. Where, no, they can't be in the temple in verse 2. They can't wait to get the Pilate's headquarters. They've got Jesus bound up and tied. Uh, they've got to be off to uh, the headquarters. So what's this doing here? Uh, why is this inserted here? Matthew is showing us something. He's been showing us something that we need to see. Think about all of the things that Jesus has been saying. Uh, turn with me back just to Matthew 20 and verse 19. If you just turn back a couple of pages to Matthew 20. And in fact, let's we'll start with verse 17. At this point in time, Jesus and his disciples are headed to Jerusalem. And at one point, Jesus takes the 12 disciples aside on the way and He said to them, verse 18, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And He will be raised on the third day. And Matthew is showing us that everything Jesus has said is going to happen. It's happening. If you look at each one of these things, he's going to be delivered to the chief priest. That's already happened. He's going to be condemned to death. That's already happened. And he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. That's where he's headed right now in verse 2 of Matthew 27. And as we think this further... Jesus, on this very night, the, 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 in the wee hours of the morning, he told his disciples, "Listen, one, one of you is going to betray me tonight." Well, Jesus was betrayed, wasn't he? And he says, "You're all going to scatter because of me this night," and they they all scattered, didn't they? And he says, "One of you will deny me three times before the rooster crows." Peter denies him three times before the rooster crows. And you want to talk about timing? When do roosters typically crow? First rays of light, right? I am willing to guess that chapter 27, verse 1, when morning comes, Peter is weeping at that very moment because the Lord had sent a prophet to him, a rooster who crowed and reminded him of his denials. You see the stunning accuracy and certainty of Christ's word. Now, what's that got to do with growing and growing in our love and, our, and growing in, in, in treasuring up Jesus to our hearts? We are creatures who require security. And we reach for security in all kinds of ways, through all kinds of things. And the problem is, we look for creation to give us security. Creation can't give us the security that we require. Everything that's been given to us is going to eventually be taken away from us. Except for Jesus and His Word as we begin to see the certainty of Christ's Word, which is what Matthew is trying to teach us here, the certainty of Jesus' Word, ah, I think I got it. Here's something I can count on. Though I can't count on very much in this life, and you can't count on very much in this life, I can count on this. And what we can count on is valuable to us. And as we grow on this, as we grow being able to count on the security Of Jesus' words, guess what happens? He becomes more valuable to us. And as He becomes more valuable to us, we inevitably begin to love Him more. How do we grow in loving and treasuring Jesus? For starters, we see the certainty of His word. Let me do one more and I'll wrap up. Look at verse 2. You see they bound Him and they led Him away and delivered Him over to Pilate the governor. You see that they bound Him? Chapter 27, verse 2. Probably have him in chains, most likely, and they're leading him through the streets of Jerusalem in chains. Yeah. And if you recall a couple of weeks ago, uh, when Jesus is apprehended in the garden, you know, Judas comes in, he has his sign, you know, he's going to kiss Jesus, and that's the cue. And I told you, you, know, you can kind of read between the lines, Judas probably gave them instructions saying, listen, fellas, you need to understand something about Jesus. I've seen him do this many times. They people have tried to trap him. They've tried to apprehend him. They've tried to they've tried to they tried to grab him, and he just walks out of there. Like you'd almost think he's in control of everything. I don't know how he does it. You'd almost think he's in control. Of course, he is in control. And that's probably why they show up with so many people and swords and clubs. And Jesus even says to them, "You come after me with swords and clubs? Man, I was teaching in your I was I, I wasn't just hiding in the crowd." I was the teacher in the synagogues. I was up front, in front of everybody. If you wanted to grab me, certainly you had all kinds of opportunities to grab me. Yeah, right. They would have never apprehended him had he not willingly imprisoned himself to them. He didn't need to be bound. He wasn't going anywhere. He would never have tried to escape. This was God's plan. This was the reason he came. As we look at him and we see him bound... We should be rightfully thinking, here Jesus imprisons himself for what purpose? To set his prisoners free. Jesus is the one in chains, but he's the only one here that's free. Everyone else is in prison. We think of Isaiah 61. He's come to set the captives free. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon him as he's come to set the captives free. He's come to set the prisoners free. What does Jesus have to do to save us? He has to set us free. Free from what? From the dominion of the tyrant of the evil one. From the dominion of sin. We're so bent on that. Our hearts are so bent on that. Unless, Unless Jesus comes and does something with our hearts, that's what we're going to continue to do to our destruction. He has to set us free. He willingly binds himself so that he can do what? So he can go to the cross. So he can suffer the wrath that his people deserve. See, that's what melts hard hearts. You want to think, this speaks more in terms of loving Jesus, I think. But it's hard to disconnect. How How do you dissect between loving and treasuring? Those things are so interrelated. But this speaks more of loving. You want to love him, look at the cross. You want to love him? Look at him willingly, freely, bound in shackles and the humility and the shame of walking through the streets of Jerusalem. Oh, they got him, you know. We thought he was a holy man, but it doesn't appear to be so holy now. And they spit on him and they mocked him and they flogged him and he never even retaliated with an evil thought against them. To the contrary, loving them all the way to the cross. You want to love Jesus? Nothing will melt your heart like this. In conclusion, and we'll pick this up right here next time, but in conclusion, our walk with the Lord really is, in many respects, proportional to our our appraisal of Jesus and how we value Jesus. So uh, this week, today, this is the Lord's day. It's set aside for these purposes. Drink of this stuff. Prayerfully call on the Lord to set your heart aflame for Jesus. Let's not leave here satisfied with little love for Jesus. Let's not leave here that way. There's no reason to leave here that way. We shouldn't leave that way. How can we serve God with little love for Jesus? Let's ask the Lord to inflame our hearts for Him. Let's ask the Lord to set our hearts on fire for Him, that He would truly be the treasure thereof. Amen? Heavenly Father, We thank you, O Lord, for this text, this precious text, O Lord, that does not reveal its fruit right away to us. But, O Father, you have have arranged that we have to work for this. We have to roll the sleeves up to see this. But, O Father, by your grace and your goodness, as those sleeves are rolled up and we begin to see what's taking place here, O Father, how it opens up before us. And, O Lord, we thank you and we love you for it. We ask, O Lord, that you would indeed increase our appraisal of Jesus, that, oh, Father, we would be, just, we would be seen, oh, Lord, as, as, uh, we, as those who love Jesus more than anything. And, Lord, we know it's your good pleasure to reveal Jesus to us. We know that you're happy to reveal the glory of the Son of God to us. So, Lord, as we go forth from this place, as we go to our prayer closets, as we, as we gather together, Lord, stir our hearts. Stir our hearts to love Jesus more. Stir our hearts to see the beauty, the majesty, the splendor, the overall worth of Jesus uh, with eyes that can see clearer and clearer. And We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.